Well, good morning. First of all, I just want to say thank you for um, how you've ministered to my family this morning. Um, there's not, every church that I go to is a little bit different, um, and not every church allows children to be in the service. Uh, they kind of farm them out at the beginning uh, to their own thing, oftentimes with good intentions, but we tend to miss something as a people when our kids aren't with us worshiping God together and seeing their parents and seeing their, their parents' friends and grandparents and other people worshiping God and, and, and giving of what they have and greeting one another and all of those good things that we do as a church. So thank you for the way that you ministered to my family this morning and allowing my kids, who um, are used to one church, come to another church and see that there are Christians in other places worshiping the same risen Lord and Savior. So thank you for that. And also, I would say thanks for your patience with our kids. You know, they're, they're usually squirmy and they're, they're a little bit loud and, and they distract us from what we want to be focusing on. But you're helping to teach them, so thank you for doing that. The other thing I want to say is uh, I've, I've known Matt for about 15 years now uh, from my time when I was at the Metropolitan Bible Church working there. And um, as I've followed his trajectory over the years and as I've learned more and more about your church at a distance, uh, pastors talk and we try to encourage one another, what I've learned is that what I knew about Matt was kind of confirmed in the things that he told me, and that is he has a deep love for this church. Uh, that, is, that is a special thing to have as a church, to have a pastor that really, really loves his church. Also, that you have elders that really care for this church as well. That's something that just continually comes up in our conversation. Elders that care about the oversight of this church. And so those are two things that just as I spend time talking with Matt uh, about and as we've prayed for your church in the past, uh, we give thanks to God for. Those are gifts that God has given your church, and I'm just thankful for that. Um, As Matt mentioned, I was serving as the associate pastor of Maple Avenue Baptist Church in Georgetown for the last 10 years, and just a couple of months ago, uh, stepped out of that role. Our family has the privilege of remaining in that church, which isn't always something that that pastors tend to do, but we have just a wonderful love and relationship with the church that we're at, and so we continue to worship there. So we're away from our home, but feeling at home with you this morning. As he mentioned, I've I've stepped into the role of the executive director of uh, Katoa. Uh, It's an online charitable organization that I founded uh, about five years ago. And we are looking particularly to connect classrooms, children, and educators uh, with humanitarian issues around the world. And we've managed to find some really good partners that we work with. You might have heard of one of them I want to mention real quickly is the International Justice Mission. And they do excellent work in helping oppressed peoples around the world. And so what we've managed to do is create something that allows us into the public education system. Uh, And then myself as a Christian get to go in and bear witness really to what grace is in my own life as we look to uh, grace others in various ways. Um, this morning, we are going to be reading from God's Word, and I was, I was encouraged to see Bibles in your pew there. So if you don't have one with you, then you can grab the Bible that's in the pew, in front of, pew rack in front of you. And I'd ask that you turn to page 1027. We're going to be in the book of Jude today. It's a really short letter, so it's easy to miss. It's not one that often gets preached on, and so you'll, you'll find yourself flipping. It's right near the back of your Bible. If you find 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, make a right. But don't go too far. If you hit Revelation, quick left, okay? And then you'll find it, page 1027. You won't actually find a page number on there because it's so short they don't give you page numbers on those ones. And one of the things that we know and we have confidence in, we have confidence in, is that, is that God has spoken. And that God has spoken to us 
uh, by his spirit and through his word, right? And so we have God's word this morning. So as I hear pages rustling, this is wonderful. I'm going to give you a second to make sure you're there. And then I'm going to ask that we actually stand together for the reading of God's word. Can we do that together, please? I'm going to be reading from Jude, verses 17 to 23. Listen as I read. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy, excuse me, I'm going to start that verse again, okay, I missed my spot. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, there we are, keep yourselves in the love of God, good word, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is God's word to us this morning. You may be seated. Would you join me as I pray? Father, might you by your spirit use your word to equip our minds and impact our hearts today. I pray that we would grow in our love for Christ, our love for the church, and our love for the lost as a result. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Division and strife, it's, it's all around us. If it's not an active part of your life, it's not hard to see it active in others. Be it the high-profile celebrity split of Brangelina, the many cultural, racial, religious, and even ethnic divides that we have seen exposed as a result of the election to the south of us, or the complex war that continues to devastate Syria. Division is not hard to find. Of course, division isn't unique to what Scripture refers to as the world, is it? It's expected there. We would expect to see the world that is outside of the church to be at odds with one another. But did you notice from our passage today that division is also something that's to be expected within the church as well? The church, this collection of self-proclaimed followers of Jesus, you are prone to division as well. Now, the world would look at any kind of division that we have internally and, and uh, kind of mark it off as uh, just different personality types, uh, people coming together that are at odds. You know, we all bring our own stuff to the table, and we've all been impacted by the way we've been raised and the culture around us, and, and really all we have is just differing perspectives on reality, morality, and our experiences. Sociologists like Emile Durkheim, uh, Karl Marx, others, Max Weber, they all give us sociological theories on, on why these things come up and then 
how to fix the issues that, ar- that arise between us. Uh, but of course, for us as Christians, as, as Christians, modern sociological theories, they, they are only profitable if they do two things. One, if they cause us to believe right things about holiness, what it means to mirror the very character of God. And two, to cause us to consider the eternal implications of our interactions with others. And these are the two things, actually, that our text is raising the alarm about this morning. But sociological theories that we are fed, all of these things, and the socio-psychological movements of the 20th and 21st century, pop culture gurus, Dr. Phil, we got Deepak Chopra, throw Joel Osteen in there sometimes. You know, they leave us wanting when it comes to things of eternal significance. And they don't actually help us as a church. You see, what scripture warns us of aren't the relational rifts rooted in competing personality types, but people who question the authority of God's word and lead others to do likewise. It was a concern that was raised for the church by Jude 2,000 years ago. But as we read our passage today, That is a concern for us today as well, isn't it? And this is where the book of Jude, just a brief letter of 25 verses, it cuts out all of the chatter that happens around us. And it appeals to believers to beware. Beware of the dangers that will surely assail their fellowship. Beware of dangers that will assail your fellowship here. And to safeguard the saints. Think of a parent that's sending their kids out to school. I'm, I'm at that phase. My, my oldest is seven. We have a seven-year-old, a, a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. So we're in that busy phase. And uh, our oldest two now take the bus to school. Our, our, our second daughter, Olivia, she just started taking the bus. So this was a new experience. And I thought, oh, how's this going to work? You know, Barb and I, we got together, we talked, what do we feel comfortable with? How is this going to work? How do, we, how do we express our concern for our kids and help them uh, take care? Well, we told our oldest, Catherine, who's seven, who's seven, and we said, Catherine, here's what you need to do in the morning uh, after school when you get off the bus. You're going to be crossing a road all by yourself. There's no, there's no crossing guard. So you're going to have to wait. Okay, I want you to take Olivia's hand. I want you to hold her. Because sometimes, you know, she can be a little more... A little fun. You know, she doesn't pay attention as much. <laughs> but, but cars move quick. So I want you to hold her hand all the way across. And you're going to make sure that she gets across safely. And when you get to our house, we have to cross that other street. Again, I know there's not a lot of cars there. But wait for her. Make sure you hold her hand. I want to trust you with these instructions. And that, that's what Jude's doing for us this morning. He's giving us instructions on what we should be doing to safeguard that which is so dear, that which is so precious, that which we should desire nothing of ill to happen to. And he does that for us. So the big picture of Jude as a whole is to be aware of false teachers and those who refuse to acknowledge God. tells us to find our footing and care for those in our midst who have been drawn into deceit. Jude would also add this main directive. Let me say this. So build yourselves up in your most holy faith. 
keep yourselves in the love of God. The heart of Jude is to see believers aware of what aims to take their attention, erode their faith, and fracture the family of God. And so we outlined seven things for us this morning, seven things that believers are to engage as they consider the division that endangers the church. In fact, if you look at verse 17, you'll notice, look right there at verse 17, it's appealing to us as believers, the beloved, the beloved. These are those who we would call ourselves among the beloved, the church. The church was just about 60 years old when this was written. And he was warned that there would come a time when scoffers, people that mocked God's call to holiness, that they would come among the church. People who, who thought of Christ more as a cute, cuddly kitten to be, uh, you know, kind of, brought in on a whim rather than the line of Judah who would one day come back to rightfully judge. He warns against those who follow their own ungodly passions and says that they will also be ones who are going to be causing the division. And not the kind of division where we think differently about things, like what time should we have the potluck next week? That sounds like it's going to be good. Uh, the pot, what time should that be? Or... or should we put a new roof on or should we change the carpet? Or It's not that kind of thing, right? It's not those sorts of things. No, the division these people bring calls into question the very core of orthodox faith. These scoffers, they bring into question the atoning work of Christ. Whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. Whether or not Jesus will one day return as we sang about. And almost as always as characterized as by their, uh, by their approach to sin, their tone towards sin. They look at it, and their word is, it just doesn't matter all that much. Jude tells us to have an ear out for such talk, an eye out for such people. Because he says that even though they may exist among you, they are not of you. Why is that? For you have been born of the Spirit, and they, look at verse 19, see what verse 19 says. They are what? Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. These people are not Christians. In fact, verses 3, 17, and 20 of this book all use the same word, beloved, to get our attention as believers, as the beloved of God. We are to be the opposite of what we hear described. And what is summarized of those people whom Jude says we will encounter as divisive and devoid of the Spirit? In verses 6 to 13 of, of this short letter, he gives names. He calls them out. Allow your eyes just to slide up the page and scan the names that are there. People like Cain and Balaam and Korah, those in Sodom and Gomorrah, those who reject God's word, encourage sensuality and greed and who despise the authority of God and his revealed word. In fact, look at verse 12 and how it describes such people and ultimately their fate. Look at verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. Danger that does not truthfully present itself as such. Waterless clouds, the perception of value, but in reality do nothing to promote growth. 
fruitless trees, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars. These are useless for navigating truth. And this is the terrifying phrase in it all. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. We never want to flirt with being one of those people. Be aware and be warned. God's word tells us that it is a serious thing to stand in defiance of his holiness. And for those who do, the consequences are eternal. But you, but you beloved, look again in verse 20. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. If you've ever been on a plane before, you know what the, um, the, pre-fight, the pre-flight safety routine is. Maybe you've even started rolling and they're, and they're still kind of walking you through things. They give you instructions so that in case of the sudden loss of cabin pressure, right, an air mask will drop down from the ceiling. You are to take the air mask, place it on your face, right, look around, and help those next to you. Right? That's, that's what you're supposed to do. You want to put yours on and make sure that you are able to help those around you. Well, it's simple enough on an airplane, right, where... When their trouble presents itself, the solution to that problem literally drops out of the ceiling into your lap. Right? That's wonderful. But what about here on the ground? What about the life that we each live? One often that can feel more like a stormy sea where the tides of life and the currents of culture are just really strong. How are we supposed to help ourselves, let alone help others? When the seas of life and doubt and temptation are raging, if ever there was a time that we needed a solution to just to fall in our laps, that would be it. But it's not that way. It's not that way. No solution falls from heaven and relieves us of the trials and temptations we face in this world. Why is that? Because heaven's solution has already come, and in Christ and by his Spirit, we are given all that we need to live lives of godliness and devotion. And with that truth on the table, we're told to work intentionally, diligently, and humbly to keep ourselves in the love of God until with finality, mercy is afforded us in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we do this? What does this intentionality, this diligence, this humility look like? Well, if you look back to verse 20, we'll see four of the seven directives given to us as the beloved. Look there. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And finally, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. God's word to us is to keep ourselves in his love as we wait for Christ's return. Now, at first hearing and and in isolation, uh, keeping ourselves in God's love sounds like we are more the sustainer of our faith than is Christ. 
which of course doesn't make sense in light of Scripture as a whole. That, that if I just do X, then God must love me. But take all that we've been given and hear it this way. You keep yourselves in God's love by praying in the Holy Spirit and building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And we do this by knowing God's word and keeping his commandments. Just listen to what we can assemble from the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. Just that chapter alone, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The opposite, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The way to keep ourselves in God's love, not in a salvific sense, but in a sanctifying sense, is to know God's word and to keep his commandments. So while we do not save ourselves in any part, we can't make God love us, we are not passive in our salvation, nor are we absent recipients of God's love. These words are echoed in the first chapter of Second Peter, where he provides us with some specific things, specific things that we are to engage as Christians in keeping the commandments of Christ as we keep ourselves in the love of God. He says this, listen, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly affection and to brotherly affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Keep yourselves in the love of God. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. English theologian John Stott wrote about our passage in Jude in the following way. He said this, Here we find the typical two sides of the New Testament approach to the Christian life. God has done all in Christ that we need to be saved, yet we must respond to God. God keeps us and we are to keep ourselves. Both are true and neither can be sacrificed without missing something essential to the Christian pursuit of godliness. We build ourselves up in our most holy faith by keeping Jesus' commandments. We live under and in the light of his good word and submit ourselves to him in every respect and in so doing... We keep ourselves in the love of God. And we do this with a future hope in mind. See again what it says in the back half of verse 21. Look at what it says there. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The Christian faith is one that is characterized by hope. It is a defining factor for us as people. 
Hope, which is by definition that which has yet to happen, is something we cling to. And as ones who are saved, we are being kept and we are keeping ourselves in the love of God in anticipation of what? The hope that we have. The hope that we sang about. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And just as Christians 2,000 years ago, we too remain with this hope firmly planted in front of us. If all else is stripped away, that hope remains unshaken. And that hope also does something else for us. It's a hope, understand it like this, it's a hope that acknowledges that we are saved. In Christ we are saved. Beloved. But our salvation has not yet been fully realized. Uh, Think of it like this. Um, My oldest uh, gets to stay up on Saturday nights and watch the first period of hockey night in Canada with me. If you're an oldest child, you know that uh, you probably had a few extra responsibilities put on you over the years, especially if you had uh, a number of younger siblings. Well, my oldest, Catherine, she gets to stay up with me on Saturday nights. And sorry, folks, we watch the Leafs. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting this really hard life in front of her. <laughs> uh, I apologize. Um, so we watch this. And um, we were given the opportunity last year, you know, after doing this for a couple of years, every Saturday night watching this together, we got a chance to go to Catherine's very first Leaf game. Like, first thing. Like, think, I, I know there's some diehard Sens fans in here, right? Like, there's some diehard Sens fans. And, you know, getting to go, like, bring your kid to their first Sens game, it's just like, wow, this is amazing. I, I know Catherine had fun. I might have had more fun. Um, and it was just such an amazing experience. So here, let, let me help explain it like this. We had, we had possession of these tickets. And we had possession of these tickets. And our faith was that they were real, right? These tickets were real. Our hope was that they would be accepted, deemed legitimate by the ticket takers when we got down to the Air Canada Center. And so when we got to the ACC, uh, our anticipation had been building. We were prepared for the game. We were ready. We, you know, we ate pasta three nights in a row before all the rest of it. We were, we were ready to go. Our faith was validated and our hope was realized when they let us in the building. You see, as Christians, as one sealed by the Spirit, our hope is that the faith we have in Christ will be realized when we are judged by a holy God. When the end has come and the living and the dead are judged alike, that our sin will not be held against us, but in our place, Christ and his righteousness will stand as our substitute. And every accusation that is rightly hurled against you and me will fall when the nail-pierced hands of Christ's righteousness is attributed to us in our frail state. And so, along with Christians around the world, those who live in luxury like we do, and those who are being persecuted because of their faith. We wait 
for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. It is the hope that is before us that remains unshaken. And so while our action is called for, while our action is called for, we're called to participate in this sanctifying work, we can't forget that the Godhead is the source of our strength. If you look at verse 20, the Holy Spirit is mentioned, in whom we are to pray with the Father and the Son, in verse 21. And within that, we have this trifecta of of Christian virtues stated alongside in faith, hope, and love. Faith and love are explicitly mentioned in verses 20 and 21, while the hope we are called to in Christ is couched in the phrase, waiting for the mercy. So for you, for you beloved, it begins of being aware of what wayward star would look to knock you off course. To secure your foothold by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and keeping yourselves in the love of God. Yes, for your good. Yes, for God's glory. But also for this, so that you can be of help to others in the faith. Secure your air mask and be prepared to help those around you. And so we're told to be merciful and be ready to engage in rescue missions. And it's in this that the last three of seven things we're told to do is explained. Look at verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Listen, for some, standing on the promises of God doesn't feel as secure as they had hoped or as secure as it may have once felt. They have doubts. Maybe you have doubts. And you're even giving real consideration to the alternatives that life offers you, those apart from Christ. And whether they, you, feel it in in your heart, or just those things of the world begin to look deceptively shiny, you know, those things that want to lure you in. We've been called to show mercy. We can find ourselves, we can see others just falling towards the fire. God's word to us is this. Our response is to have mercy. Particularly towards those who doubt. Particularly towards those who doubt. When those questions come up for the person who has been a Christian for four weeks, or four months, or four years, or for 40 years, how can I be sure that the Bible is really true? Others teach different things, right? There's different things out there. They sound good. What if I didn't make the right choice? What if I chose wrong? Everything about culture says that I can live like this and... You know what? The church is saying no, but the church has been wrong about things before. And what, Why can't I? What's wrong with it? 
I just feel really confused. I'm not really sure even what I believe right now. That core of, of faith feels like the axis is shaky at best. How do we handle these doubts as a church? How do you handle these doubts as a church? How do we love such people? The directive given isn't just for the pastors of churches. It's for all of us, beloved. Have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy are really helpful to us. In verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2, listen as I read what he says. They're helpful for those who doubt. The Lord's servant, think of us collectively as Christians. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, correcting with gentleness. So don't be harsh. Don't be demeaning. Jesus is still king, even if others are wrong. With those who doubt, with those who have stumbled and find themselves amidst the flames, don't assume that heresy is the person's end game. Be patient, be loving, be helpful, provide sound biblical counsel. Give them the instruction from God's word, the instruction that he's given you. Have mercy. So we're called to have mercy, but we're also called to fear and hate. Those are two things that sound just strange for Christians, to fear and hate. But what are we to fear and what should we hate? What fire are we saving them from? To be honest, the text is a little unclear on that. It doesn't just give us that wonderful explanation that we might like. But here's one thing that we do know about the fire. The things that we do know from Scripture about fire is that when it's dealing with sin or those who oppose God, it's always a picture of God's judgment. And it's not good. Whether it's to expose falsehood through Elijah and the prophets, or the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the lake of fire that is spoken of in the New Testament, fire is not a good thing when we're talking about God's judgment. Now, what form that judgment takes in this case isn't exactly clear, but we do know that being under the judgment of God isn't good, and we want to live in a way that avoids such an encounter. And as for fear, should we fear those we are trying to save? Should we fear being tempted ourselves but what, by what you know, they're involved in? Should we fear that others might follow them in their pursuit of the things God warns against? Should our fear of God, a right and holy judge, grow in light of the defiance we can see before us? In fact, the answer is yes to all of those things. The answer is yes to all of those things. We should fear all of those things. But none of these things are good enough reasons for us not to get involved and ignore the perishing around us. Then what are we to hate? Our text tells us that that we should hate the garment that is stained by the flesh. Now, if the people that Jude is describing our ones repenting, what must we hate then? We must hate anything that is less than full repentance. A complete reversal of lifestyle, a change of attitude towards their past. 
For their sake, in saving them, we, can't, we cannot afford to demand anything less. Anything less than what God has called them to. We want them to understand God and His character and His holiness. And what His gospel revealed to us in Christ is saving them from. We cannot lower the standard in hope that if the terms are easier, then maybe more people will buy in. Maybe our numbers will get bigger. No, no. That is to love the garment and hate the sinner. Instead, we are called to love the ones who are caught and hate the sin that longs to destroy them. And I believe all the things that we have here are talking to us as Christians, to you as a church, believers, the beloved, who are up against the world, and sometimes it was weight of doubt, your own flesh, and the devil is bearing down on you. But I think that our concern must also extend to those in our community, those in our context, who are not Christians, and who wouldn't claim to be, but don't even know that they're lost. You live in the, the national capital region. Spent seven years of my life going to school and working and living here. There's about 1.2 million people in this vicinity. If I were to exaggerate and suggest that 10% of that 1.2 million attended churches where the gospel was preached, let alone 10% actually being believers, that would mean that there are still over a million people in your region, over a million people within an hour's drive of where we are right now that are lost. And that has to excite us because the hope of the gospel is there for them just as it is for each one of us beloved. That God would place you in a city where the world comes and where there is still such great need. What an opportunity. What a blessing to be given to you. Yes, some of these people, they will openly reject Christ and want nothing to do with the gospel if presented with it. Others will deny that, that God exists at all. Or they'll reject the notion that they need a savior. But from the interactions I had living in this city for seven years, I would argue that most just don't actually have a clue. They don't have a clear, logically consistent position on the things of faith, let alone whether or not they think they're going to heaven or hell and why that might or might not be the case. And so I think the heart of our text extends to these people as well. Because like the ones whose garments we hate because they have been so encapsulated by sin. These people are in a worse place because they don't even know the kind of danger they're in. They don't even know that they're standing on tracks, let alone that a train is coming. And so we care about these people who do not know what they do not know or who have been sold on what the world is selling because we are called to be a people who show mercy and save others from the impending flames of God's judgment. Because we have been saved. And so these one million people that we know don't attend any church where the gospel is proclaimed, would not call Christ 
their Lord. They don't know that the judgment is coming. They don't know what God's discipline will look like. They've never professed Christ or repented of their sin. These one million people. And they're your neighbors. They're your co-workers. For some of you, they're your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa. They're the people that sit next to you on OC Transpo in the morning heading to work or on the O train on the way back or that you see in traffic in Ottawa now on the 417 all the time. They're the people that go to the gym that you meet there in your class. They're the moms that are pushing their strollers in all of these just pockets of communities that are coming up. They're people that are in schools that are coming from other countries where they've never even heard of Jesus. They're the people that you know. They're the people that you love. There are more than 100,000 souls. More than 100,000 souls. Probably closer to 200,000 souls that live within five minute, a five-minute drive of this place where we sit right now who are lost. And the reality is, while many of them have heard of Jesus, because we still have Christmas and Easter, and Jesus makes an appearance every once in a while in those things, they don't actually know the Jesus of the Scriptures. And what I've learned is that if they're kind of college age, university age, and younger, they cannot explain the gospel to you at all. The call to us in keeping ourselves in God's love is an active one with epic, eternal implications. And so we keep ourselves in the love of God as we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. God calls us to be merciful and to pull others from the flames because that's exactly, it's exactly what he did for us. When God the Son took on flesh to die in our place. An arm was extended to us, we who needed to be snatched from the fire. And when he did that, he said, if you will place your hope in me, if you will trust that my death is sufficient for your sin and wait for the mercy that leads to eternal life, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you will believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is His word, and that is His promise. And God is not a liar. The fire is real, so pull people from the impending flames. What we know of Jude is that as the brother of Jesus, he was not always a believer. He didn't start out understanding who Jesus was. But at some point, maybe even after Christ's death and resurrection, he got it. And the final directives of this man who shared youthful air with the Son of Man are these. Remember the words of the apostles. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Build yourselves up. Build one another up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. 
Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Show mercy with fear, with fear hating all forms of sin. And in doing so together, we will wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And that is our amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we are your beloved. By your Holy Spirit, keep us from falsehood and from the division and the worldliness which follows from those things. And as you have mercy on us, move our hearts that we might have mercy on those who doubt and are stumbling. Bring assurance to all, all who doubt and conviction to all who have yet to believe. Would you use this church, I pray. Use these people, I pray. As your witness, as instruments of your humble grace for the good of your people, for the glory of your name, and for the love of those who are lost. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, in whom we have hope. Amen and amen. Hear this good word from God's word. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.